Hey everyone, you're listening to the West Coast Bible Teacher. My name is Adam, and this is the show where we are teaching the Word of God, one podcast at a time. Today we're going to be finishing up the fascinating book of Exodus. We're actually going to be moving pretty quick today. We're going to get through four chapters. And those of you who regularly listen to the show will know that I usually don't get through uh, that many chapters at a time. However, this week it's a little bit different. The four chapters that we're going to be covering are very much a recap of what we've already discussed before concerning the construction of the tabernacle and the various items that were placed within the tabernacle setting. But what an exciting study it's been in uh, the book of Exodus. We've been going through this book now, chapter by chapter, ever since the beginning of the uh, summer. And next week we'll be moving into the book of Leviticus. And I'll just give you a little bit of a heads up, I do plan on moving through the book of Leviticus a little bit quicker, since many of the regulations and practices that are uh, discussed in the book can after a while become a little bit tedious. So for the most part, we will be going verse by verse through Leviticus. However, we will probably be moving through the book a lot quicker uh, than we did the book of Exodus. But it's been an incredible journey over the past four months studying through the book of Exodus each week. And we learned a lot of amazing things. There are events in Exodus which have long-lasting effects throughout the rest of the biblical narrative. One of the most obvious of these is the establishment of the Mosaic Law. God chose the Hebrew nation to be a special nation, one that was separate from all other tribes and groups of people back at that time. Unlike other groups of people, the Hebrew people would have a personal relationship with the one true God who made heaven and earth. But over time, we will see in the Old Testament narrative that the Mosaic Covenant simply didn't work out so well for the nation of Israel. They were quick to break the laws that were established by God. Paul tells us in the book of Romans that the law of Moses didn't go so well because it was weakened by the flesh. I like the way it's put in the New Living Translation. This is Romans 8.3. It states, The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. So the Mosaic Law did have a purpose. Its ultimate purpose was to show humanity that no one is able to live up to the moral standards that are written on paper. All of us are going to fall from time to time because of the weakness of our flesh. And therefore we all need a Savior, one who can bear the burden of our sin. We can't bear such a burden, but the Son of God can. 
And thus the purpose of the Mosaic Covenant was to show both the nation of Israel and the entire world that they needed Jesus Christ. And we've studied how many of the sacrificial ordinances and regulations that the Hebrews were to participate in under the Mosaic Covenant pointed towards Christ's sacrifice on the cross. So thus we see here that the Mosaic Covenant established in the book of Exodus has long-lasting implications, most of which pertain to the coming of the Messiah. God spoke within the pages of the book of Jeremiah and stated, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts, and write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. That sums it up right there now, doesn't it? We can be thankful that we are living within this new covenant to where through the sacrifice of Christ Jesus, we can have an intimate relationship with the Most High God. Now, the Mosaic Covenant has certainly been the dominant theme throughout our study, uh, at least in the second half of the book of Exodus. But let's go back a little further and reflect on what we learned at the beginning of this book uh, in the first half of the book of Exodus. The Israelites were in bondage for many years in the land of Egypt. They were being greatly oppressed by the Egyptians, all of whom, of course, were under the guidance of Pharaoh. However, the Lord had not forgotten about the promises that he made to the forefathers of the Israelites, particularly to that of Abraham. And back in Genesis, he told Abraham, Hey, your descendants are going to be enslaved in a distant land for... 400 years. But God still assured Abraham that they would nevertheless possess the land that he had reserved for them. This was a promise. And since God intended to keep his promise, he raised up Moses. And you know the story by now. Moses grew up in the Egyptian households, and he became very educated in the uh, Egyptian customs and ways of living. God no doubt was preparing Moses for when he would uh, use him to lead the Israelites out of the Egyptian captivity. And that's of course what occurred. The Lord eventually used Moses as an old man to articulate his message to the Egyptian Pharaoh. And of course this message was that it was time to let the Lord's people go free. We read about how stubborn Pharaoh was, and how he hardened his heart a multitude of times. But after a great battle occurred with all the spectacular plagues of Egypt and all these things, the Israelites were finally freed from their Egyptian captivity, and the wilderness journey had now begun. Now, throughout our study in Exodus, we've been able to draw parallels between the journey of the Israelites 
in our journey as Christians. For just as the Israelites were in bondage in Egypt, we as believers were once in bondage to our sin. We were trapped in this uh, captivity of sin. But then just as God delivered the Israelites from the Egyptian bondage, we were also delivered by the Lord from our captivity, our bondage, which, uh, of course, was leading us straight to hell. But just as the Israelites were then placed into the wilderness journey, we as believers will begin what we can uh, view as a wilderness journey upon accepting Jesus into our lives. This is a journey where we will now be moving towards full surrender to the Lord. We'll be battling temptations to indulge in past sins. There are going to be battles along the way, just as the Israelites had to engage in hand-to-hand combat during their time on the wilderness road. The Holy Spirit will now be present within our lives, trying very hard to get us to put away distractions and things that will keep us from putting our relationship with God first. And the overall goal is to reach the promised land, which the initial generation of Israelites who came out of Egypt did not reach. They failed to get their act together. We will see throughout the next few books of the Old Testament how this generation that came out of Egypt really blew it. They allowed their flesh to get in the way, and it cost them the chance to make it to the promised land that the Lord had in store for them. Now, I've talked about how in our lives as Christians, we can see the promised land as representing the abundant life that the Lord has in store for us as Christians. I'm talking about the divine plan that the Lord has in store for each one of us as believers living on this earth. And I believe that the only way to live out this divine plan and reap all of the blessings of it is if you surrender your life fully to the Lord. Start putting your relationship with God first. Just as the first generation of Israelites never made it to the promised land, there are many Christians today who never put their relationship with God first in their lives, and therefore they never get to live out that abundant life that God had in store for them. And I'll be honest, I believe that I was on that track at an earlier time in my life. God had to allow some heavy trials to come my way in order to, you know, straighten me out, in order to get me to start putting him first and foremost uh, before everything. The trials that I went through in life were painful, but looking back, I'm actually glad that I went through them because God used them to work things out together for my good in life. When you're experiencing painful trial, and you're trying to figure out why God is allowing you to experience it, remember that He can see the full picture. God might very well be using your tribulation for a very good purpose in your life. That's one reason for us to keep the faith 
when we're experiencing a painful circumstance. Now, we've learned all these things uh, throughout our study in Exodus. And it's now time to finish our study in the book of Exodus, as we pick it up in chapter 37. God reestablished the Mosaic Covenant with Israel after they repented for their great apostasy. And now, after reaffirming the covenant, it was now time for them to get to work, for they will now be constructing the tabernacle. And God raised up Bezalel and Aholiab to uh, oversee this project. And verse 1 of Exodus 37 uh, actually starts with mentioning uh, Bezalel, at least. So we read in verse 1 of Exodus 37, And Bezalel made the ark of Shechem wood. Two cubits and a half was the length of it, and a cubit and a half the breadth of it, and a cubit and a half the height of it. And he overlaid it with pure gold within and without, and made a crown of gold to it round about. And he cast for it four rings of gold to be set by the four corners of it, even two rings upon the one side of it, and two rings upon the other side of it. And he made staves of shittim wood, and overlaid them with gold, and he put the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark to bear the ark. And he made the mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half was the length thereof, and one cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And he made two cherubims of gold, beaten out of one piece made he them, on the two ends of the mercy seat, one cherub on the end of this side, and another cherub on the other end on, on that side. Out of the mercy seat made he the cherubims, on the two ends thereof. And the cherubims spread out their wings on high, and covered with their wings over the mercy seat, with their faces one to another, even to the mercy seatward were the faces of the cherubims. These nine verses here, are speaking about the construction of the Ark of the Covenant, which we've gone over in depth within uh, our previous studies. Within the Ark would be the stone tablets, which uh, had the Ten Commandments inscribed upon them. And it is also indicated to us in the Scriptures that the Lord's presence within the tabernacle would rest upon the Ark of the Covenant. In Numbers chapter 7, Verse 29, we see how the Lord would regularly speak with Moses within the tabernacle tent, and this would occur right where the Ark of the Covenant was sitting. Number 729 reads, And when Moses was gone into the tabernacle of the congregation to speak with him, then he heard the voice of one speaking unto him from off the mercy seat that was upon the Ark of the Testimony, from between the two cherubims, and he spake unto him. So, the mercy seat was the throne, which the presence of God would rest upon. And also notice how the Lord did keep his promise to Moses, that his presence would never depart from the Hebrew people. Two weeks ago, we read about how Moses pleaded with the Lord, because God was considering removing his presence from the Israelites. And God was considering this because of their great rebellion against him. So after Moses served as mediator for the Israelites, the Lord gave Moses the assurance 
that his presence wouldn't leave the Hebrew people. And then later in the book of Numbers, we see that God did keep his word, and his presence was among the Israelites within the tabernacle, and it was resting upon the Ark of the Covenant. It is uh, fitting, by the way, that the presence of God was resting upon what is called the mercy seat. It was because of the Lord's great mercy that he granted Moses' request to not remove his presence from the Hebrew people. And then after the tabernacle is constructed, where does the Lord's presence rest? The Lord's presence rests upon the mercy seat. Fascinating. And of course, the entirety of the tabernacle ordinances revolved around God's mercy, as the Hebrew priests were making amends for the sins of the Israelite people. So let's continue now in verse 10. And he made the table of Shechem wood, two cubits was the length thereof, and a cubit the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And he overlaid it with pure gold, and made thereunto a crown of gold round about. And he made thereunto a border of a, uh, an hand breadth round about. And he made a crown of gold for the border thereof round about. And he cast for it four rings of gold, and put the rings upon the four corners that were in the four feet thereof. Over against the border were the rings, the places for the staves to bear the table. And he made the staves of Shittim wood, and overlaid them with gold to bear the table. And he made the vessels which were upon the table, his dishes and his spoons, and his bowls and his covers to cover withal of pure gold. Now, these verses are speaking about the table of showbread, which would uh, also be placed within the tabernacle setting. The priests would place... Twelve loaves of unleavened bread upon the table, where they would sit there for one week. And every Sabbath day, the priests would then replace the old loaves with new loaves of bread. The twelve loaves, of course, no doubt represented the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, it appears that commentators are not all in 100% agreement as to what exactly the entire process of the table of showbread symbolized. There are those who take the position that the bread which was sitting upon the table was a representation of God's continual provision for the nation of Israel. Certainly, in reflecting on this, we can be reminded that each and every day, the Lord provides for us. His provision is always upon us, just as it was uh, always upon the Hebrew people. He provides for us spiritually, as we have the entire biblical canon to utilize in our Christian walk. And we also have the Holy Spirit, who will guide us into all truth, as Jesus said he would. And then also physically, we are provided for by our Heavenly Father. Never take for granted the food you have to eat and the water that you have to drink. The Lord provides wonderful things for us to enjoy each and every day.
So God no doubt provided for the Israelites while operating under the Old Covenant. And God also provides for us while we are living within this new covenant. Continuing then in verse 17, uh, we read of the construction of the golden lampstand, which was uh, the main source of light within the tabernacle. And he made the candlestick of pure gold, of beaten work made he the candlestick. His shaft and his branch and his bowls, his knops and his flowers were of the same. And six branches going out of the sides thereof, three branches of the candlestick out of the one side thereof, and three branches of, of the candlestick out of the other side thereof. Three bowls made after the fashion of almonds in one branch, a knop and a flower, and three bowls made like almonds in another branch, a knop and a flower, so throughout the six branches going out of the candlestick. And in the candlestick were four bowls made like almonds, his knops and his flowers, and a knop under two branches of the same, and a knop under two branches of the same, and a knop under two branches of the same, according to the six branches going out of it. Their knops and their branches were of the same, all of it was one beaten work of pure gold. And he made his seven lamps, and his snuffers, and his snuff dishes of pure gold. Of a talent of pure gold made he it, and all the vessels thereof. Now, getting into verses 25 through 29, we read here of the construction of the altar of incense. We covered in previous chapters how this sweet incense was to be burnt before the Lord continually in the tabernacle setting. And virtually all scholars agree that this represented the prayers that were being lifted up to God by the Hebrew people. So in verse 25, And he made the incense altar of Shechem wood. The length of it was a cubit, and the breadth of it a cubit. It was four square, and two cubits was the height of it. The horns thereof were of the same. And he overlaid it with pure gold, both the top of it, and the sides thereof round about, and the horns of it. Also he made unto it a crown of gold round about. And he made two rings of gold for it under the crown thereof, by the two corners of it, upon the two sides thereof, to be places for uh, the staves to bear it withal. And he made the staves of Shechem wood, and overlaid them with gold. And he made the holy anointing oil, and the pure incense of sweet spices, according to the work of the apothecary. So now, moving into chapter 38, we start out with reading of the altar of burnt offering, which was designed for animal sacrifice. The priests, as we know, were there to serve as mediators between the people and God. So the sacrifices that were offered up were meant as atonement for the sins of the Hebrew people. Now one commentator points out how there was just one altar in the tabernacle. Much like how there is just one way to salvation, and that is through Christ Jesus. For when Thomas asked Jesus in the Gospels, How can we know the way? Jesus responded with saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. 
and within the book of Acts. Peter proclaimed to the elders of Israel, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. So there is only one way to salvation, and that is through Jesus Christ. And we see here in the book of Exodus that there was only one altar. And this altar, of course, was used to atone for the sins of many. So picking it up in verse 1, And he made the altar of burnt offering of Shechem wood. Five cubits was the length thereof, and five cubits the breadth thereof. It was four square, and three cubits the height thereof. And he made the horns thereof on the four corners of it. The horns thereof were of the same, and he overlaid it with brass. And he made all the vessels of the altar, the pots and the shovels, and the basins, and the flesh hooks, and the fire pans, all the vessels thereof he made of brass. And he made for the altar a brazen grate of network under the compass thereof, beneath unto the midst of it. And he cast four rings for the four ends of the grate of brass, to be places for the staves. And he made the staves of Shechem wood, and overlaid them with brass. And he put the staves into the rings on the sides of the altar, to bear it withal. And he made the altar hollow with boards. And then in verse 8 we start reading of the uh, laver of brass, also described in other translations as the bronze basin. And this basin was to be filled with water, so that the priests would be able to wash their hands and feet upon coming into the tabernacle to perform their ordinances. This emphasized that the priests were to be pure and holy while in the presence of the Lord. And the scriptures indicate that if the priests failed to maintain this purity, it would result in their death. So this was very important. And here the bronze basin is uh, being constructed. For we read in verse 8, And he made the laver of brass, and the foot of it of brass, of the looking glasses, of the woman assembling, which assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. We read here that the laver of brass was made from the looking glasses of the woman assembling. Looking glasses, of course, uh, is an older term for mirrors. We're reading this in the King James Version. Uh, and oftentimes the King James will have uh, words that are much older and, uh, you know, people don't use them that much anymore. But the bronze basin was made from the bronze mirrors of the woman. And these women gave these basins as a willing offering unto God. Remember, we read about how those among the children of Israel who were willing to give from the heart brought their offerings before God to contribute to the tabernacle's construction. These were like uh, donations. They were donating equipment to make the tabernacle, but it was all done as an offering to the Lord. But the scriptures emphasized that they were willing to do this. And the woman brought their brass mirrors to give for the purpose of the tabernacle. 
I'm sure that these brass mirrors were, you know, quite nice. They were probably quite a thing to give up. But they did it from a willing heart. And we as Christians need to be willing to give our best to God in every area of life. Last week I talked about how we need to be willing to give our time to God. How often are you taking the time to read God's Word and study your Bible? How often are you making time during the week for prayer? These are all very important things to keep in mind. But in verse 9 now, we read about how Bezaleel made the court of the tabernacle. On the south side southward, the hangings of the court were of fine twin linen and hundred cubits. Their pillars were twenty, and their brazen sockets twenty. The hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. And for the north side of the hangings were an hundred cubits. Their pillars were twenty, and their sockets of brass twenty. The hooks of the pillars and their fillets of silver. And for the west side were hangings of fifty cubits, their pillars ten, and their sockets ten, the hooks of the pillars and their fillets of silver. And for the east side eastward fifty cubits, the hangings of the one side of the gate were fifteen cubits, their pillars three, and their sockets three. And for the other side of the court gate on this hand and that hand were hangings of fifteen cubits, their pillars three, and their sockets three. All the hangings of the court round about were a fine twin linen, and the sockets for the pillars were of brass, the hooks of the pillars and their fillets of silver, and the overlaying of their uh, chapters of silver, and all the pillars of the court were filleted uh, with silver. And the hanging for the gate of the court was needlework of blue, and purple, and scarlet, and fine twin linen, and twenty cubits was the length, and the height and the breadth was five cubits, answerable to the hangings of the court. And their pillars were four, and their sockets of brass four, their hooks of silver, and the overlaying of their chapters, and their fillets of silver." And all the pins of the tabernacle and of the court round about were of brass. So all of this describes how Bezalel constructed the courtyard of the tabernacle. And the entirety of the courtyard formed what was a perfect rectangle. I would recommend all my listeners to uh, look up the tabernacle courtyard. All it takes is a quick Google search. And you will see many great replicas of the uh, tabernacle setting. And also on YouTube, uh, there are great resources where you can find videos of the tabernacle setting. There are actually real-life replicas that have been built of the tabernacle, so you can get a terrific idea of how it all looked when it was uh, being utilized by the Hebrew people in the desert. Now, continuing in verse 21, what is now given to us is a record, or uh, inventory, documentation perhaps, of the materials used to form the tabernacle. So, verse 21, this is the sum of the tabernacle, even of the tabernacle of testimony, as it was counted according to the commandment of Moses, 
for the service of the Levites by the hand of Ithamar, son to Aaron the priest, and Bezaleel the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord commanded Moses. And with him was Aholiab, son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, an engraver and a cunning workman, and an embroiderer in blue, and in purple, and in scarlet, and fine linen. All the gold that was occupied for the work and all the work of the holy place, even the gold of the offering, was twenty and nine talents, and seven hundred and thirty shekels, after the shekel of the sanctuary. And the silver of them that were numbered of the congregation was a hundred talents, and a thousand seven hundred and threescore and fifteen shekels, after the shekel of the sanctuary. Now, keep in mind here that uh, there are many people today who view the Bible as nothing more than a collection of myths and legends that are, you know, nothing more than fiction. But look here at these incredible details and records that we are given here within the biblical text. It should be clear to most critical thinkers that all of these details are testament to the fact that this was a story which recorded true events that actually occurred within Israel's ancient history. Right here, Moses, who was the author of Exodus, is recording all these details pertaining to the amount of precious metals which were used in the tabernacle's construction. Now, Peter Enns is a Bible scholar and theologian, and also a professor. And he also happens to be someone who has... uh, contributed to well-known outlets such as the Huffington Post. Now, the Huffington Post very much appears to be a news organization that is very much in opposition to biblical principles. I don't want to get too political, but, uh, you know, that's just an observation. But anyhow, within Peter N.'s work... He has estimated that the total amount of materials which were used, you know, the gold, the silver, and uh, and all of that, added up to 15,000 pounds. But all of this, of course, speaks to the continual provision that God had upon the nation of Israel. So, verse 26, A becca for every man that is half a shekel, after the shekel of the sanctuary... For every one that went to be numbered from twenty years old and upward, for six hundred thousand and three thousand and five hundred and fifty men, and of the hundred talons of silver were cast the sockets of the sanctuary, and the sockets of the veil, an hundred sockets of the hundred talents, a talent for a socket. And of the thousand seven hundred seventy and five shekels, he made hooks for the pillars and overlaid their chapters and filleted them. And the brass of the offering was seventy talons and two thousand and four hundred shekels. And therewith he made the sockets to the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and the brazen altar and the brazen grate for it and all the vessels of the altar. 
and the sockets of the court round about, and the sockets of the court gate, and all the pins of the tabernacle, and all the pins of the court round about. So we move now into Exodus 39, and we are beginning with the holy garments that uh, Aaron and his sons were to wear as priests ministering within the temple setting, or the tabernacle setting, whatever you want to call it. Um, Obviously, they weren't in the temple at this point, they were in the tabernacle. So starting from verse 1, And of the blue and purple and scarlet, they made cloths of service to do service in the holy place, and made the holy garments for Aaron, as the Lord commanded Moses. And he made the ephod of gold, blue and purple and scarlet and fine twin linen. And they did beat the gold into thin plates and cut it into wires to work it in the blue and in the purple and in the scarlet and in the fine linen with cunning work. They made shoulder pieces for it to couple it together. By the two edges it was coupled together. And the curious girdle of Zephod that was upon it was of the same, according to the work thereof, of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet, and fine twin linen, as the Lord commanded Moses. And they wrought onk stones enclosed with, uh, in, in, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, in ouches of gold, graven as signets are graven, with the names of the children of Israel. And he put them on the shoulders of the ephod, that they should be stones for a memorial to the children of Israel, as the Lord commanded Moses. And he made the breastplate of cunning work, like the work of the ephod, of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet, and fine twin linen. It was four square, they made the breastplate double, a span was the length thereof, and a span the breadth thereof, being doubled. And they set it in four rows of stones. The first row was a sardius, a topaz, and a carbuncle. This was the first row. And the second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. And the third row, a ligrur, an agate, and a uh, amethyst. Hopefully that's how you pronounce that. Um, <laughs> and the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They were enclosed in ouches of gold and their enclosings. And the stones were according to the names of the children of Israel, twelve according to their names, like the engravings of a signet, every one with his name according to the twelve tribes." Now, we covered the priestly garments very thoroughly in previous podcast teachings. This entire outfit that the priests were to wear while conducting their tabernacle rituals was filled with symbolism, particularly that of the fact that the priests were operating in the tabernacle on behalf of the Hebrew people. So, down in verse 6, we read of the ouches of gold, which were pretty much from what I remember on the shoulders of the priests. And engraved in these ouches were the names of the children of Israel. And then later in verse 14, we are reminded of the stones that were placed within the breastplate worn by the priest. And these stones were also a representation of the twelve tribes of Israel. All of this symbolized how the priests were 
conducting their ordinances on behalf of the Israelites. And we then are brought to the New Testament, where Jesus as our high priest let his blood spill down upon the cross on behalf of us, as we were sinners in need of a Savior. Christ died on behalf of us. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And those words, of course, come from Isaiah. So continuing here in Exodus in verse 15, And they made upon the breastplate chains at the ends of wreathen work of pure gold, and they made two ouches of gold, and two gold rings, and put the two rings in the two ends of the breastplate. And they put the two wreathen chains of gold and the two rings on the ends of the breastplate. And the two ends of the two wreathen chains they fastened in the two ouches, and put them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod before it. And they made two rings of gold, and put them on the two ends of the breastplate upon the border of it, which was on the side of the ephod inward. And they made two other golden rings, and put them on the two sides of the ephod underneath, toward the forepart of it, over against the other coupling thereof, above the curious girdle of the ephod. And they did bind the breastplate by his rings unto the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue, that it might be above the curious girdle of the ephod, and that the breastplate might not be loosed from the ephod, as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, some like to point out how it stresses here in verse 21 that those who constructed the tabernacle setting did everything just as the Lord had commanded Moses. So the men who worked on all these things were incredibly precise to follow all the instruction that the Lord provided. May we also do the same in our Christian walk. May we do all that we can to follow the instructions that God has given us in His Word. And may we do everything that we possibly can to be precise while in the process. It's amazing how the Lord has given us very clear instructions and commandments in His Word. Yet so many Christians live their life having hardly any interest at all to follow the statutes that God's laid out for us. We must never forget that God will without a doubt one day hold us accountable for this. We are going to be accountable for whether or not we made a real effort in this life to follow the instructions that God provided us within His Word. The scriptures indicate that all we have done in this life, both the good things and the bad, will one day be brought to light when we stand before God. Even the words that we have uttered will be judged by the Lord. Um, you know, this is interesting. I've read this verse before in the New Testament, however, just recently I rediscovered this passage in Matthew where Jesus affirms every idle word that men shall speak. 
they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. So God is going to bring to light even the words that come out of our mouths, not just our actions. And oftentimes our words are even more powerful than our actions. The scriptures tell us that death and life are in the power of the tongue. So if we are verbally abusive to people, if we lash out at people in our anger, you know, and say very vicious things to them, God is going to really hold us accountable for this in the day of judgment. So those of you, actually, those of you who have been verbally abused can actually take comfort in the fact that one day your abusers will be brought to justice as God will hold them accountable for all the horrible things that they've uttered to you. So these are all interesting things for us to keep in mind. But the men who were tasked with constructing the tabernacle and everything in the tabernacle and the holy garments here and all followed the instructions that God gave them to the T. So continuing in verse 22, And he made the robe of the ephod of roven work, all of blue. And there was a hole in the midst of the robe, as the hole of a harbor, uh, a harbor jun, with a band round about the hole, that it should not rend. And they made upon the hems of the robe pomegranates of blue, and purple, and scarlet, and twin linen. And they made bells of pure gold, and put the bells between the pomegranates upon the hem of the robe, round about between the pomegranates. And a bell and a pomegranate, and a bell and a pomegranate, round about the hem of the robe, to minister in, as the Lord commanded Moses. And they made coats of fine linen, of roven work for Aaron, and for his sons. And a mitre of fine linen, and goodly bonnets of fine linen, and linen breeches of fine twin linen, and a girdle of fine twin linen, and blue and purple, and scarlet of needlework, as the Lord commanded Moses. So after all that, um, we read in verse 23, Thus was all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation finished, and the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so did they. And they brought the tabernacle unto Moses, the tent, and all his furniture, his tatches, his boards, his bars, and his pillars, and his sockets, and the covering of rams' skin dyed red, and the covering of badger skins, and the veil of the covering, the ark of the covenant, and the staves thereof, and the mercy seat, the table, and all the vessels thereof, and the showbread, the pure candlestick with the lamps thereof, even with the lamps to be set in order, and all the vessels thereof, and the oil for light, and the golden altar, and the anointing oil, and the sweet incense, and the hanging for the tabernacle door, the brazen altar, and the, uh, I'm sorry, and his grate of brass, his staves, and all his vessels, the laver and his foot, the hangings of the court, his pillars and his sockets, and the hanging for the court gate, his cords and his pins, and all the vessels of the service of the tabernacle for the tent of the congregation. 
the cloths of service to do service in the holy place, and the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and his son's garments to minister in the priest's office. According to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so the children of Israel made all the work. And Moses did look upon all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded. Even so had they done it, and Moses blessed them. So Moses looked upon all the work that was completed, and was no doubt pleased with it all. And so he blessed them. Some scholars like to uh, draw parallels between this image here with Moses blessing the people after the tabernacle's work was finished, with how God blessed Adam and Eve after he was finished with his work of creation. But all these details concerning the materials of the tabernacle and the ordinances that were to be uh, done in the tabernacle are so heavily documented here in Exodus in order to stress their immense importance and significance. And as I mentioned at the beginning of today's podcast study, these practices of worship that were conducted within the Old Testament period were done in order to stress the significance of the coming of the Messiah. All right, uh, here we are now. We have reached the final chapter in the book of Exodus. We're in Exodus chapter 40. And obviously I had the choice whether or not to, uh, cover this final chapter in today's podcast teaching, but, uh, I figured that we might as well, and it's not a particularly long chapter. But after the tabernacle materials were constructed, and Moses blessed all of it and was pleased with all the work that was done, the Lord spoke to Moses at the beginning of chapter 40, saying, on the first day of the month shalt thou set up the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation. Now later in verse 17 of Exodus 40, we will see that this took place about one year after their deliverance from the land of Egypt. Um, verse 17 affirms that the tabernacle was erected at the beginning of the first month uh, of the second year. But in verse 3, Thou shalt put therein the ark of the testimony, and cover the ark with the veil. So the ark here we see is mentioned first, the ark of the covenant, before all the other items of the tabernacle. So clearly the ark was to be viewed as one of the most crucial aspects of the tabernacle setting. Indeed, the ark was essentially God's throne. It was where his presence would rest as the priests and Moses himself regularly communed with him. And throughout Scripture, the Ark of the Covenant continues to play a very significant role in various narratives. Later in the book of 1 Samuel, we read of how the Philistine army captured the Ark of the Covenant after uh, Israel had been battling with them. And uh, Israel lost the battle, and many of the Israelite men were slaughtered. This is a very sad turning point in the story of Israel, actually, uh, within that particular narrative in 1 Samuel. 
The initial capture of the Ark of the Covenant occurs in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And then in the subsequent chapters, we read of the devastating and actually very humorous effects that the Philistines experienced for stealing the Ark of the Covenant. So the Ark will continue to play an immensely important role within the continuing books of the Old Testament. Now, continuing on in verse 4, many of these items of the tabernacle that we have, again, we've uh, already covered them, so let's just read them off. And thou shalt bring in the table and set in order the things that are to be set in order upon it. And thou shalt bring in the candlestick and light the lamps thereof. And thou shalt set the altar of gold for the incense before the ark of the testimony and put the hanging of the door to the tabernacle. And thou shalt set the altar of the burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation. And thou shalt set the laver between the tent of the congregation and the altar, and shalt put water therein. And thou shalt set up the court round about, and hang up the hanging at the court gate. So, now, next we see here that God gives instructions pertaining to the anointing oil. Uh, which pertain to the consecration of the tabernacle. Verse 9, And thou shalt take the anointing oil, and anoint the tabernacle, and all that is therein, and shall hollow it, and all the vessels thereof, and it shall be holy. And thou shalt anoint the altar of the burnt offering, and all his vessels, and sanctify the altar, and that shall be an holy altar, and thou shalt anoint the laver and his foot, and sanctify it. And thou shalt bring Aaron and his sons unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and wash them with water. And thou shalt put upon Aaron the holy garments, and anoint him, and sanctify him, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. Keep in mind that this entire process of the consecration, uh, which included the consecration of the tabernacle setting, and also the consecration of the priests, took place later on in the book of Leviticus. Right now, these are just instructions that uh, the Lord is giving, which uh, will be carried out shortly afterwards. And thou shalt bring his sons, and clothe them with coats, and thou shalt anoint them, as thou didst, uh, didst anoint their father, that they may minister unto me in the priest's office. For their anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations. Thus did Moses, according to all that the Lord commanded him, so did he. So, again, we get the emphasis here that Moses was completely in obedience to the Lord, throughout this entire process. He didn't falter in any way, but rather he obeyed God's commands here fully. Later in the book of Numbers, it is actually written that Moses was a very humble man, more so than all men who were living on earth. So that's quite a significant feat and of course, Moses wasn't perfect. We see later that he did have his shortcomings, like we all do. However, he still did his very best to live righteously 
and obediently before the Lord, just as all of us should be doing in this one life that God has given each of us on this earth. So Moses did all that the Lord commanded him to do, as we read here in verse 16. And now in verse 17, It came to pass in the first month in the second year, on the first day of the month, that the tabernacle was reared up. And Moses reared up the tabernacle, and fastened his sockets, and set up the boards thereof, and put in the bars thereof, and reared up his pillars. And he spread abroad the tent over the tabernacle, and put the covering of the tent above upon it, as the Lord commanded Moses. And he took and put the testimony into the ark, and set the staves on the ark, and put the mercy seat above the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle, and set up the veil of the covering, and covered the ark of the testimony as the Lord commanded Moses. And he put the table in the tent of the congregation, upon the side of the tabernacle northward, without the veil. And he set the bread in order upon it before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he put the candlestick in the tent of the congregation, over against the table, on the side of the tabernacle southward. And he lighted the lamps before the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. And he put the golden altar in the tent of the congregation before the veil, and he burnt sweet incense thereon, as the Lord commanded Moses. And he set up the hanging at the door of the tabernacle, and he put the altar of the burnt offering by the door of the tabernacle, of the tent of the congregation, and offered upon it the burnt offering and the meat offering, as the Lord commanded Moses. And he set the laver between the tent of the congregation and the altar, and put water there to wash withal. And Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet thereat, when they went into the tent of the congregation, and when they came near unto the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he reared up the court round about the tabernacle and the altar, and set up the hanging of the court gate, So Moses finished the work. So then the narrative of the book of Exodus ends here with verses 34 through 35. And we see that the book ends with the presence of God coming upon the nation of Israel and guiding them along the way on their journey. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation, because the cloud abode thereon. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And when the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the children of Israel went onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud were not taken up, then they journeyed not till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel, throughout all their journeys. So there you have it. The book ends with the presence of God in the form of a cloud, covering the tabernacle. And then we read of how the cloud of the Lord by day, and fire by night, remained with Israel on all of their journey. 
The Israelites were delivered from their bondage. They were delivered from their Egyptian captivity. But just like in our Christian walk, after we have received salvation, the Israelites had some ups and downs. They fell back into their fleshly desires at one point. They did complain. They did demonstrate a lack of faith from time to time. Yet within God's divine plan, He brought them through their biggest failures and remained with them for a very long time. As Christians, we will certainly have very big low points in our walk with God. There will be times when we mess up greatly, you know, and do things which will uh, later look back and think, holy cow, you know, what was I thinking? However, these low moments that we do occasionally experience in our walk with the Lord can certainly serve as a wonderful reminder that despite our shortcomings and great flaws, God the Father has offered us the gift of salvation. We can't earn it in any way. For all have sinned and have fallen short of God's glory. But through the death of His Son, Jesus, we've been given grace. The grace which the Holy Scriptures foretold of all the way back to the book of Exodus. So that's it. We made it through Exodus. And uh, I want to thank all of you who have stuck around on this journey. But hey, the journey continues. And we will be picking it up next week in Leviticus chapter 1. So for those of you who haven't subscribed yet, I would encourage you to do so. And I would also encourage you to please share this podcast with someone who you believe would be blessed by it. Especially since we, uh, you know, we're... uh, starting a new book of the Bible now, the book of Leviticus. So you can share this podcast with other people that they can join in now in uh, this new study that we're going to be starting next week. New episodes of this podcast are up every Friday, and you can go on my website, westcoastbibleteacher.com, to access past episodes, and you can also check out and subscribe to my blog. This has been the West Coast Bible Teacher, everyone. God bless you, and hey, I'll see you next week.